Gresham College presents Symposium, Taking and Giving, Part 2 Philanthropy Old, Setting the Boundary Posts by Professor Hugh Cunningham, University of Kent Philanthropy has a surprisingly short history. It dates back no further than the late 18th century. Standing here in Gresham's College, founded through the generosity of Sir Thomas Gresham in the 16th century, that will sound an absurd claim. But Gresham was a benefactor. The first person to be called a philanthropist was the prison reformer, John Howard, in the 1780s. It was in that decade, too, that there was founded the Philanthropic Society, which dealt with juvenile crime. Philanthropy was born in and out of the Enlightenment. In this talk, I want to look at the first century or so of philanthropy, up to the point in the early 20th century, when it had begun to take on recognisably modern forms. Now, our normal take on 19th century philanthropy, particularly, I think, if we think of it as Victorian philanthropy, is to see it as a golden age. There's certainly much to celebrate, much, too, that's still embedded in our society. Think of the RSPCA, the RNLI, the NSPCC, Barnardos, all founded in the 19th century, all familiar to us today. Think of any town you like, and you'll find a library, a museum, an art gallery, a public park, founded by a 19th century philanthropist. Or think of individuals like the Baroness Burdick Coutts or George Peabody, or of the chocolate philanthropists, the Fries, the Roundtrees, the Cadburys. I could go on. But like many historians, I'm a bit wary of golden ages. They're normally invented long after the events they describe. When I started looking at 19th century philanthropy, what struck me was the amount of criticism of it. And my argument this afternoon is going to be that the force of these criticisms set up boundary posts for the role that philanthropy could play in the 20th century. In many ways, philanthropy became hemmed in. I also want to trace the changes that philanthropy itself underwent. In its origins, it had little or nothing to do with the giving of money. The first criticism of philanthropy came from political economists. The birth of philanthropy more or less coincides with the birth and rise to prominence of political economy. And political economists preached market solutions to social problems. They were above all concerned that wages should be determined by the market. Earning a living through wages was fundamental, they thought, both to a successful economy and to personal morality, and I suspect many of us think the same now. In 1824, one writer reflected on the impact that political economy had had. To convince the public, he wrote, to convince the public 20 or 30 years ago of the goodness of a charity, it was sufficient to show that the objects relieved, and I'd say one of the slightly off-putting things about 18th and 19th century charity and philanthropy is they always talk about the objects who are being relieved. <laughs> there seem to be just objects out there. It was sufficient to show that the objects who were relieved were in a state of real distress. 
But now that the circumstances are more generally known on which the condition of the labouring classes depends, all former reasonings on the subject of charity are invalidated. The condition of the labouring classes with regard to the necessaries and comforts of life is evidently determined by the rate of wages. Start giving to beggars or to the poor, it was said, and you begin to create a dependency culture. Existing charitable practices came under heavy fire. As a preacher at Adambrook's hospital put it, indiscriminate donations are not found infrequently to defeat the purposes of industry, and in a commercial kingdom may do as much harm as the most unfeeling parsimony. Britain was undoubtedly a commercial kingdom, and the time for indiscriminate giving was over. Nothing did more harm than the misplaced benevolence of the charitable and humane. Now, this was an attack on charity and on that much heralded 18th century virtue, benevolence. By the 1820s, claims were being made for philanthropy as a means by which political economy could set bounds to unlimited charity. Teaching the poor the knowledge of the laws which regulate wages, it was said, depends in a great measure upon the exertions of enlightened philanthropists. Thirty years later, in an article tellingly entitled Charity Noxious and Beneficent, the message was still being drummed home. The profession of philanthropy, like every other, can be safely and servicely practised only by those who have mastered its principles and graduated in its soundest schools. It is as dangerous to practise charity as to practise physics without a diploma. However, once the principles of political economy were firmly established, your kindly impulses will cast off the lazy shape of charity and rise into the attitude and assume the garb of true philanthropy. Philanthropy, however, never clearly separated itself from the lazy shape of charity. By the 1860s, there were mutterings about a misguided and sanguine philanthropy, about misdirected philanthropy. Philanthropy seemed to be no better than the charity or benevolence from which it was trying to emancipate itself. In 1877, the prominent liberal George Goshen complained in the House of Commons that political economy had been dethroned and philanthropy had been allowed to take its place. Political economy, he said, was the bugbear of the working classes and philanthropy, he was sorry to say, was their idol. Reading warnings like this could reduce well-intentioned people to a state of paralyzing uncertainty. In the mid-1840s, Mary Carpenter, at the outset of a famous career working with street children, wrote for advice on the matter, and her mentor, James Martineau, replied, I can discover no satisfactory guiding principle to determine the conflict between Christian compassion and Christian economy, so that I never give and never withhold without compunction. Now, the Christian economy that Martineau referred to was fundamentally 
political economy. A fact brought home by the response of Brooke Lambert, a vicar at London's East End, in the face of a tide of indiscriminate West End money that had poured into the East End in a bad year. Preaching before the University of Oxford in 1868, the marvel of Christ's life, said Lambert, is his repression of his powers of beneficence. It was a new take on the gospel. Giving became a hazardous issue. We, like Christ, probably not the message you want to take away from this afternoon, should repress our powers of beneficence. It was said of John Ruskin that he never dares to give anything in the streets without looking on all sides in case there's a political economist coming. Now, the assumption of the discourse I've been describing to you was that the fundamental task of charity and philanthropy was to provide relief to the poor. And within that overall mission, the even more fundamental task was to do that without demoralizing the poor, without creating a dependency class. In a way, charity and philanthropy created the dependency class, which is often thought the welfare state created in the mid-20th century. At an institutional level, the foundation of the Charity Organization Society in the late 1860s was the most concerted effort to put political economy into practice in the charitable world. The COS set out to conduct a vigorous investigation of every claimant and to direct them to an appropriate source of help. The poor law for the uh, undeserving or unhelpable some suitable charity for those who came through the investigation more positively. The COS was much better at setting out its ideal agenda than at finding the resources to put it into practice. Outside London, its presence was often sketchy, its presuppositions challenged. But one can't doubt that the COS, up to the First World War, was a leading participant in discussions of poverty and in how to deal with it. The people who worked for the COS didn't think of themselves as philanthropists, nor did others label them as such. They were an increasingly professionalised class of social scientists and policy makers whose ideas were put into effect by those who were coming to be called social workers. Faced with dire warnings of the evils they could cause by misplaced benevolence, would-be philanthropists turned their attention elsewhere. Philanthropy and the relief of poverty became disconnected. Through the 20th century and continuing to the present, there seems to me to have been a tense and uneasy relationship between, on the one hand, what came to be called the voluntary sector and the charities within it, and on the other, philanthropy, the more so as the voluntary sector turned to the state as a source of finance. The voluntary sector sees itself as playing the leading role in dealing with poverty, Philanthropy seen as an occasional piece of icing on the cake. So there was one boundary post in place. The second criticism of philanthropy came from those who saw it as failing to provide adequate solutions to the social problems of late Victorian and Edwardian Britain. The state, it was argued, must play a bigger role. If philanthropy in the 19th century had to pitch itself in relation to political economy, 
By the 20th century, it was also doing so in relation to the state. Philanthropy, it was argued, was patchy in its coverage, condescending in its attitudes, and with insufficient resources for the scale of the problems thrown up by an urban and industrial society. Many rejected it on democratic and socialist grounds. A second boundary post was being erected. If the political economists who had so scared philanthropists can be seen as on the right of the political spectrum, the Fabians and others who championed the role of the state were on the left. A pincer movement was strangling philanthropy, or at least many forms of it. Third, philanthropy was also being questioned by women. Women had always found it difficult to break into the masculine world of philanthropy, except on the margins where they were welcome as fundraisers or holders of bazaars. Men planned big schemes of philanthropy. Women dealt with the problems of individuals. Josephine Butler put it this way in 1869. We've had experience of what we may call the feminine form of philanthropy, an individual, independent ministering of too medieval a type to suit the present day. It has failed. We're now about to try the masculine form of philanthropy. Large and comprehensive measures, organisations and systems planned by men and sanctioned by Parliament. Perhaps, she hoped, the two forms could be harmonised into one. It was a hope that was hardly fulfilled. This male-female divide was very much to the fore this time. Consider George Eliot's distinctly acerbic view of male philanthropy in Middlemarch, written in the early 1870s, but set in the years leading up to the first Reform Act of 1832. Eliot presents us with two male philanthropists. Neither is in any way a flattering portrait. Mr. Brooke, Dorothea's uncle and guardian, talks about getting into Parliament and working at philanthropy. But he's rambling in his thoughts and speech. His conclusions are difficult to predict or fathom. It was only safe to say, we hear from the narrator, that he would act with benevolent intentions and that he would spend as little money as possible in carrying them out. Eliot's second target was Mr. Bulstrode, the philanthropic banker, an evangelical, the projector of a new hospital, and a man whose considerable power stemmed from his knowledge of people's financial secrets. But Bulstrode himself turns out to have a secret to hide and is disgraced. So much for male philanthropy in either its secular or Christian guise. Dorothea, by contrast, has an instinct to help others. Inheriting a fortune on the death of her husband, she sits herself down before her particular little heap of books on political economy, but she can't concentrate. A much better guide is her own heart. There's no hint that her charitable impulses are anything other than natural and likely to be of benefit. Philanthropy, Eliot seems to be saying, is a masculine world full of grandiose schemes, their outward appearances often masking inner ambitions and vanity on the part of the progenitor. 
women have no place in it. The third boundary post made philanthropy dominantly a male avocation. Political economists, Fabians, women, they were formidable critics of philanthropy. From a quite different angle, so were the fourth body of critics, the recipients of philanthropy. Their problem was that what they wanted, money, was what the philanthropists wouldn't give. What the poor were given, it's true, could sometimes be converted into money. Well-meaning people who collected and donated clothing for school children worried puzzlingly that they never saw the children actually wearing the clothes. They'd been pawned or sold. Without the money that they wanted, recipients used charity and charitable organisations for their own purposes, often at some distance from the aims of the charitable. Orphanages, for example, so-called, rarely had many orphans. They were a place of often temporary deposit for children whom parents couldn't care for. There's also striking evidence of the unintended consequences of philanthropy from Bernardo's. After Bernardo was banned from um, using those famous stage before and after photos he used, he still continued to take a photograph of every person who entered Bernardo's. Far from being clad in rags, many were extremely well-dressed, taken to Bernardo's because their parents saw time there and a reference from Bernardo's as likely to lead to a good job. It's difficult to imagine anything further distant between the street Arabs that appear in the, in the propaganda and these pictures of uh, rather proud-looking children dressed up for the occasion having their photographs. A further problem for donors and others was that the recipients were not always sufficiently grateful. A report on the state of the peasantry in the county of Kent in the 1830s claimed that the peasants received any charity with ingratitude and sullenness. Donors erected barriers to keep the poor at a distance. To get into hospital, for example, you needed letters of recommendation. W.H. Davis, in his The Autobiography of a Supertramp, gives an account at once hilarious and tragic of his expenditure on paper and stamps, writing to anyone who might give him the appropriate recommendation. By contrast, the charity of the poor to the poor was, many observers claimed, of much more importance than that of the rich to the poor. And it was given with no strings attached beyond some notion of reciprocity. Scared away from trying to deal with poverty, the secret or not-so-secret millionaires of the 19th century turned to less controversial ways of giving, and it has to be said, ones which might better preserve their names to posterity. Hospitals, dispensaries, schools, asylums, public parks, libraries, museums, art galleries, perhaps that extraordinary 5% philanthropy that might improve housing. Uh, you, you would give some money to housing, but you get 5% return, which would be quite nice now. Um, these became the characteristic forms of 19th century philanthropy. Although they were similar in form across the country, these kinds of giving were rooted in a sense of locality and of civic bourgeois culture. And by the end of the century, a lot of historians now argue, that culture was breaking up. 
the sons of self-made businessmen were educated or sent off to be educated at public schools and they began to think and act nationally, not locally. Creating the civic infrastructure was the achievement of the 19th century and was running out of steam by 1900. Another boundary post was being established. These boundary posts that I have described constrained the role philanthropy could play in the 20th century. And there was yet another boundary post, perhaps bigger than all. Philanthropy, by, by the end of the 19th century, was measured in cash terms. This would have astonished John Howard. He was called a philanthropist because of his love of humankind. A meticulous man, he carefully counted up the miles he had travelled inspecting prisons, 42,033. He made no mention of any money he might have given. If philanthropy as a word was born in the late 18th century, for many years it had no clear or fixed meaning. Especially on the left of the political spectrum, it was common to make a claim to be a lover of humankind. When the land reformer Thomas Spence died in 1814, his disciples established themselves as the Society of Spencean Philanthropists and were involved in the Sparfield riots and the Cato Street conspiracy. In 1818, the first attempt to set up a general union of all trades was called rather splendidly, I think, the Philanthropic Hercules. Perhaps more relevant for us, mutualist organisations adopted the philanthropic label. The Philanthropic Society of House Carpenters and Joiners in Newcastle in 1812, for example, was dedicated upon all just occasions to assist and support each other. Blackburn in 1839 was home to a philanthropic burial society. The cost of funerals was always a deep concern to the poor in the 19th century. By 1872, it had 130,000 members. In ways which are not entirely clear, these alternative left-wing and mutualist versions of philanthropy died away and philanthropy became, as it remains, a preserve of the rich. In the government's white paper on giving, the section on philanthropy dealt exclusively with high-net-worth individuals. Now, I could give, or could have given, a more upbeat account of 19th-century philanthropy. But equally relevant today, I think, are the boundary posts which were established by the early 20th century. They set limits to the territory which philanthropy could operate in. Political economy had made direct intervention to relieve poverty hazardous in the extreme, possibly more harmful than beneficial. From a different angle, the state was about to take over many of the functions which previously had belonged to voluntary organisations, the latter deemed inadequate. When people in the interwar years, talked as they did about the new philanthropy, they thought of it working in harmony with the state, filling in the gaps, experimenting, but by no means the lead actor. Only with the critique of welfare states since the 1980s has philanthropy been able to escape from that restriction. 
in terms of gender, there was inherited a sense still, I think, discernible, whereby men initiated and ran the big projects, women were more drawn or felt themselves confined to more personal interactions and roles. As to the recipients of philanthropy, they have always, it seems to me, had a different perspective to that of the donors. But perhaps the most unexpected boundary post, and one still very much with us, is that which inextricably bound philanthropy with the giving of money. Through what processes and with what consequences, we may ask, did philanthropy, a love of humankind, come to be expressed through what the 19th century called the cash nexus? Thank you. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.